This is a crowd podcast. Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a broadcaster and fertility coach, and I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. We'll be your trusted guides, chatting each week with experts and people just like you to let you know you're not alone. Let's dive in. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Fertility Podcast. Kate's had a little break. You look I have. refreshed. Well, I've got a bit of suntan actually, yeah, because in the Lake District, I managed to catch a bit of sun while we were while my husband was dragging me around the hills and moors for a twelve, almost thirteen mile hike. Impressive. I saw Isla catching some fish. Yes, well, trying. She wouldn't catch any fish. She, she catches. She catches. We throw in a, a rock, and she brings out a bigger one, completely <laughs> the wrong size, not the same rock, and definitely no fish. You had a nice little bit of R&R, didn't you? I did. I needed it. Yeah, it was lovely. Thank you. So we've got a really interesting episode for you today where we're talking about how infertility has no colour. And we've touched on this in the past and we're going to actually be catching up with a a previous guest of ours, Dr. Christina Ketchy, who was one of our last live in-person conversations. Kate and I had met in London and we met up with Christine in a very noisy British library. And so busy, we couldn't find anywhere to sit or stand even, could we, to to do the recording? We had this episode, which I will put a link to in the show notes because it is still available at thefertilitypodcast.com, but I had to have my audio engineer try and work on it because there was so much background noise. And because Christine was saying such interesting stuff and and important information that she was sharing, uh, we really wanted to talk to her again, especially in this Mm. episode. So you will be hearing from Christine, but you're also going to hear from Vanessa Hay, who is a blogger, and Jazz Rabadia, who is also a voice within the community. We wanted to hear both of their perspectives. And interestingly, we were talking previously about the terminology BAME, which we now know isn't isn't the right way to categorise people because it's too broad, isn't it? Ultimately, we're all so individual that whilst our ethnicity does play a part still our kind of issues are still so individual and I think we really need to kind of explore that more which we will do in these conversations. We're going to talk with Vanessa first. I spoke with Vanessa. Kate you've listened to it in retrospect. What did you think about what Vanessa had to say? I think she made some really interesting points and I think they're going to resonate actually hugely with people when they're uh, listening. Really interesting. I love the perspective she's got on it and actually looking at things in a a very different way out of the box actually the way that she's looking at things and perhaps the way that we've not considered when we're considering being more specific and not lumping communities together and that's something that again we will explore more with Christine so have a listen to Vanessa and then we'll rejoin you ahead of our chat with Christine So I'm really chuffed to welcome Vanessa Hay to the podcast. Vanessa is a writer and founder of Femelanin.org. And we've met a couple of times over the years. She's a very busy lady. I've been keen to pin her down. How are you doing, Vanessa? I'm really good. It's good to speak to you again. In the virtual world. The last time we chatted, we were on a stage at the fertility show, weren't we? You had a nightmare of traffic. Do you remember? Yeah. What is it about us speaking and nightmares preceding that? I don't know what it is, but... um, we got there in the end, and we yes, did. it was at the Let's Talk stage, wasn't it? 
Well, we were talking then about what I want to talk about now, really, about overcoming the fact that infertility just isn't talked about in certain black communities. And Mm. I really want to talk as well about the issue around faith as well, because you've spoken about how particularly within some Christian and traditional African families, it's just not spoken about. And you've been working really hard to normalize this conversation, haven't you? I have. Yes, absolutely. Um, You're absolutely right. It is definitely something that is still taboo and still a stigma. Um, in in black communities, and obviously, I, I guess it's layered up with other sociocultural things like faith and everything else as to the sensitivity of the, t- the topic, if you like. Because since you've been sharing your experiences, what what have you found out? How's it been received? It's it's really based on who I shared it with. So at the very beginning, and now we're going back five years, I wasn't sharing it with anyone, not even my family, until we got to the stage of IVF, and even that. I still only told my parents, my in-laws and my siblings about the journey, because for me, it wasn't really just about how people would say, oh, you know, why are you going through IVF? You know, it's not something that we do. It was just more that when you are trying for a baby or trying to build a family, you feel like everybody else plays a part in that. So if there's disappointment, if there's something that doesn't go quite to plan along the way, Everybody else is affected, not just yourself and your partner, but your whole family are kind of invested in this new life that you're trying to bring forth. And I felt that was too much pressure to go through alongside IVF, which in itself is a journey. So for me, it took a while to talk about it. And I only really started talking to my friends about it after we got to the point of getting pregnant and having a baby. Because you had a good three years worth of trying to conceive and you were still in your 20s, weren't you, when you were going through it? Correct. Yeah, I was 27 when I got married and six months later when we decided let's not wait too long because things aren't looking too good fertility wise. That's when we started the journey. So I was still fairly young from what medical professionals would say. And in terms of support then, feeling that resistance to open up to your kind of your community, where were you getting support from I know you said you told you like immediate family but were you feeling pretty adrift and alone at that point I was feeling pretty adrift and if I'm being honest with you because because the main goal was not feeling feeling alone something that I stand by even now is the fact that infertility has no boundaries in terms of what you go through how it feels and I guess at the first point of that journey or the first hurdle for me it was about okay I can't get anything from my community because I'm not sharing and I don't feel comfortable sharing but if I can go elsewhere and find a community that talks about it that is enough for me so what that looked like was me going on chat rooms and seeing that obviously it's definitely a very very popular topic but then realizing there was a massive community on Instagram that over time, when I realised there were nuances within my journey, it was very white. Yeah. Or I'd say those that were talking about it and kind of showing their accounts and showing their faces were white women, to which I loved. But when I got to that point of the journey, when I was like, how do I approach nosy aunties or uncles that make comments? How do I approach the faith-based element of it? That's when I realised there are nuances that don't quite touch the surface in this community that I went out to thinking it would do the trick, essentially. How do you find those people that you can identify with on those nuances when they also might not be feeling they're represented and might not be ready to show themselves? Because I know that you've been now active in the community for mm-hmm. a good chunk of time. And I, I've seen from different things that you've done and people that you've connected with. And I will share some of the accounts because you're really brilliant at sharing other accounts that you know you identify better with. 
how has that process been finding people that you know do actually get what you're feeling I think the best way to answer that is really the fact that sharing is really what triggers the conversation. So I remember, so I, I spoke about the fact that I felt safer to talk about my journey in hindsight. I wanted to get to the point of having the baby and going through IVF and having success before I was then ready to say, this is what I went through to get where I am now. So it all started with an article that was written by a Metro journalist. I think that the title really was what kind of got the traction, but it was titled going through IVF and infertility as a black woman. And um, I guess that said what it said on the tin. So within hours of posting it and sharing it, I had loads of people in my, you know, my messages saying, you know, thank you so much for sharing your story. This is something that I'm going through, but I've never felt, you know, comfortable to talk to my friends about it because it almost feels like it isn't something that happens with black women, but you've definitely started a conversation that allows us to know that we're not alone. And I guess what I didn't realise was whilst it was comforting other black women, it was reciprocal in the sense that when they were coming back to me saying, I'm going through this, for me, it was also reassurance that, see, Vanessa, you're not alone. If there already is a, a perception or a very strong perception in a community and you're not seeing people that look like you talk about it, it further breeds that idea that this isn't something that this type of person goes through. But as soon as somebody starts talking and demystifies that perception, that gets the conversation going. As well as the not literally seeing people that you might identify with and not necessarily hearing the conversation, there's still such an element of shame around infertility um, within mm. a lot of, of, of traditional kind of African communities, isn't there? Because there's an assumption of virility. Sure. Yeah, there, there, there is. And I don't think it's and something that I, I always say when, when people ask the same question, what, what do you think it is, is the fact that it's so multi-layered. And that's why I'm a firm believer in, in terms of what I'm doing with Femelanin and all the other work. I'm a firm believer in understanding that experiences are intersectional. Infertility on its own has no boundaries and there is no colour to it. There are so many people that go through it in so many ways. But what people need to understand is that how we experience it is different because our surroundings. So I mentioned that in my journey, the reason why it was really, really important is because it wasn't only about me having the baby. You've got grandparents that are looking forward to the family line growing. So there's expectations held from so many other places. And something that was explained so brilliantly by another blogger, her name's Noni Martins, who runs an account called Unfertility, is she, she hit the nail on the head. She recently spoke um, on BBC Women's Hour and she said, we are raised to be mothers. And that's the reason why you need to almost see fertility or motherhood as a construct. If we're raised to be mothers, what she's essentially saying, which I agree with is at some point in our journey or in our lives, that is also a marker that we have to achieve. And when we don't achieve it, it's almost like you failed. So there is almost an association of motherhood or motherhood not being achieved, being seen as a failure, essentially. And that's the reason why it's such a big stigma in our community. And then you add in the faith element and you talked about people saying about playing with God and it being unnatural. And when you've got such strong beliefs within a faith system, that as well as navigating your way through that failure, it's almost, and, and then as you talked about before, that the, the pressure of the fertility treatment itself. And, and I know that you experienced loss and you had to have further treatment there's so much there that when your usual support network is almost failing you in how it's receiving this information when you're trying to talk about it it's so much to try and to, to manage isn't it did it make you question your faith no it actually made me stronger in my faith 
I, I don't I don't say it like it's an it's an easy task. I know many people's faiths that have been challenged and I can't I'd be lying if I say to you there were many times where I'd say, God, why? Like what's what's going on? Like why is it so hard for me to have a baby? I th- I think that's all part of the faith journey because at some point I had to kind of sit down and think, this is the one thing of all things that I'm meant to achieve and I, I thought I should achieve. This is the one thing that I don't have control over. So it's either that I quit religion, faith and God or I leave it up to him because clearly there's nothing in my own power that I can do to solve this issue. So I guess that stance is really what really, really strengthened my faith. And and more recently, you've you've written and spoken about mm. loss and secondary infertility. I know you spoke with Kelly Stewart and yeah. you've been a part of El Wright's book, A Bump in the Road. Mm. Tell me a bit about the kind of feedback you've had from the more recent experiences that you've shared, especially within within your community, because I know you've talked about doing it in hindsight and when you feel in a place ready to do it. And now you've, you know, you've got a following and you've got your amazing platform that, you know, you're doing all this hard work for. Those things that you've you've more recently shared are 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 the ongoing downsides, to put it very lightly, of the infertility journey that we're on. How how's that experience been? Um, thanks for picking that up, by the way. I'd I'd say it's always been kind of transformative in in how I approach this. Firstly, some a word that I don't even use anymore is infertility. I I, I kind of now kind of call it fertility challenges okay. because Something that another, um, and that's that's just my own personal yeah, thing. It's nothing to do with something that another blogger says from America. Her name's, I'm sure you know her, Regina Brown. She she looks after brown broken egg, yeah. and I stand by this as well. Is I've realised through loss that infertility or fertility challenges is much bigger than babies. Yeah, because there's this legacy of you realising that even after you have the baby, whether it's you know however you got the baby whether it's resulting in a live birth or a loss at some point in the journey, there is a legacy of other stuff that you experience even after achieving what you've wanted for such a long time. And I guess for me, what that taught me was now that I've had this child or you and I've lost some of those children, there's more to this. I've, I've more been looking at the angle of reproductive health. You know, before we even start thinking about how we achieve motherhood or having a child, some things that I've kind of turned a blind eye to is reproductive health and gynecological health. So I guess that part of the journey and speaking about loss and unfortunately for me, having that double-edged sword of not only being able to, con- not being able to conceive, mm. but not how- knowing how to, my body to keep those babies has kind of made me look more outside of what, what does this mean? And how do I continue this legacy? I, I didn't want it to be that. I, I know many women that I used to follow in the TTC community for their own reasons, which I respect that would have the baby. And then you'd find that they kind of disappear and they're no longer in the community. They're not really sharing their journeys. And whilst it's for their own reasons, and I understand that some people probably don't want to kind of live with that trauma or live with that experience because of what I experienced, which was the fact that it wasn't something that was spoken about. And I realized how it helped others. I didn't want it to be right. The baby's here now. And that's that there was, there was more to educate and bring awareness on. And that was reproductive health. How are we getting to the point of realising that, you know, there's something that needs to be looked upon to understand why we're dealing with these fertility challenges? How do we talk about legacy? And that's the reason why I very much connect with Elle's books and her writing, because, you know, the unfortunate thing that happened with Teddy and, and why I, I agreed to write my story was I love the fact that even though Teddy's no longer here, she speaks about legacy. There is a respect for babies that never quite got to the point of, oh, here's my baby after everything that I've been through. But she still says, 
this is something we can talk about. And for me, that's what I connect with. It, it allows me to know that infertility is more than babies. It's about speaking about the legacy of it and how we approach it even after that baby or family has been achieved. And yeah, it's really transformed the way I look at it, being honest with you. Well, it's good to hear how cathartic the experience has been <laughs> with that sharing. I just wanted to ask just finally um, how you feel just about whether the conversation is getting the traction it needs. There's definitely more voices talking about it. Can you feel the shift? I can feel the shift, but I, I say in all honesty that I think we've got a long way to go. I think that, I think there's two reasons. There is a lot of attention that is, you know, spent on obviously women that are unfortunately dying during childbirth and after childbirth. But I always say, and this, this is a reason why I, I'm now kind of moving more into the reproductive health space, because it's all part of the journey. I see fertility as a cycle, as opposed to just one part of it. I always say at the point where we're, you know, we're spending a lot of time figuring out why this is happening, it's too late. We need to be understanding what's going on even before that. And so when that, you know, really, really hefty piece of data came out from the HFEA about, you know, the lower outcomes from black women, I was shocked that it wasn't really given the airtime that I think it should have. And that what that said to me is there are people in the space like myself and other bloggers that are talking about the other parts of, mater you know, maternity, not so much giving birth, but what happens before that. But there weren't many that necessarily have the resource and the power that were speaking about it. And so that's telling me that there needs to be a more collaborative work done to raise awareness in that space. But I do just just to leave it on a positive note, I do feel like we're getting there with time, but I just still needs to be more collaborative. and there needs to be more time spent looking at the deeper issues because fertility is not just about having the baby or that part of it. It's a cycle. There's so many elements towards it and people need to have that perspective to understand why it's important to look at other sides of it. Next up, you're going to hear from Dr. Christine Akechi. So we're delighted to welcome back once again to the podcast, Dr. Christine Akechi, who was one of, as Kate and I were saying before, it was one of our last in-person podcast chats before lockdown, albeit in a very noisy British library, which I'll put a link to that conversation in the show notes. Um, Christine, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. And what an interesting way to be remembered as your last <laughs> person. Yeah, you definitely are. Very fondly. Very fondly. Yeah, I see. It, it seems like an age ago, not just kind of 18 months. Since we've spoken last, one of the things that we were keen to really start talking with you about was the paper that the HFEA shared on the ethnic diversity and fertility treatment. You were on a panel discussion, which I'm also going to put in the show notes because it was a really interesting watch. And I was really interested in how you talked about the criteria, the BAME criteria, which we've also just been discussing, isn't really accepted uh, anymore in terms of how we talk about Black and Asian women. You spoke about how it, it wasn't particularly useful and how it is important that people are seen as individuals when we're talking about infertility. And I wanted to just start with asking you to talk a bit more on this, because we know how important this education piece is when it comes to all of us about our fertility. It was really prescient that we had this discussion 18 months ago, really trying to unpick and understand why we may see the ethnic differences in fertility access and fertility outcomes. And one of the things I, I discussed was the problems and the perils of homogenizing a whole group of people. The interesting thing following the HFEA report is that it showed that whilst you may have women who are defined by their ethnicity, and characteristically, we may put them in one unified group, the differences are quite different. 
So the reasons why different women from different backgrounds present seeking fertility treatments can be very, very different and that will affect their outcomes. So whilst we found that Black and Asian women as a whole were more likely to have poorer outcomes following fertility treatments, the reasons for this were very different. Asian women, we found, were more likely to have what we describe as ovulation disorders. We know that Black women, on the other hand, were more likely to have tubal factors and tubal disease requiring fertility treatment. We also found that there was a very big difference between the women who sought treatment and the age at which they sought treatment. So Asian women actually tend to present much earlier and relative to their population size, they actually contribute or are a significant group of people seeking fertility treatment, whereas black women tend to present much later and still represent a much smaller proportion of women seeking fertility treatment. So therefore, it's clear for us to see that we need to separate this out such that when we're trying to think about interventions and ways to try and reduce the gap, we make sure that our interventions are really tailored um, very much more closely to the group, but I would argue even further to the individual, which is quite separate to their skin colour. Yeah, I I completely, absolutely agree with you. It's quite interesting, actually, when the government report came out about the terminology that we use and that actually using the terminology BAME is no longer acceptable. Yeah, it suddenly made you think, actually, yes, of course. Why Why did we lump these very, very different communities together in the first place? It just seems extraordinary when you think back on it now. I think as humans, we like simplicity and that stops mm. us from thinking um, much more deeply as to what we are trying to say. Yeah. I mean, the terminology BAME just represented everybody who wasn't Caucasian, yeah, which is absolutely. completely useless. <laughs> um, but really what it does is it, for me, tells us a lot about our society and the way that we other people that um, we determine to be away from the norm that we have characterised, which is white, and yeah. most of the time male. Um, and so I think it's important that we've understood the negative aspect of that. You know, ultimately, judging people really solely by the basis of their colour of the skin is not really useful medically or in any other way. Um, but it does give us an indication as to how we treat these people within our society. And that's mm. the much deeper conversation we should be having. We always have to remember that when we talk about Black and Asian women, they themselves are not a uniform, homogenized group. So, you know, mm. it needs hundreds of different women from, who are Black and hundreds of different Asian women and men to come out and tell their stories. So, for example, you know, um, there may be somebody speaking from a Black British perspective that may not necessarily penetrate very well to a woman that comes from a Sudanese background where religion and culture may be dominant factors. And so it's important that um, we get as wide a representation as possible. And also that we think about how these messages reach this woman. Not everybody is active on social media, for example. Yeah. So do we use all different types of, of avenues, radio and TV, as well as social media, but also within grassroots campaign groups on the ground, word of mouth. It really is actually a simple case of somebody's auntie being open about how they conceived and having a chat with, you know, the family 
and a younger family member hearing that and you know um sort of digesting that information and probably thinking okay well I would go very early to for example seek help if I have any gynecological concerns this empowers me to seek help if I'm having trouble conceiving. So Christine from all the kind of research that's gone in into black women and their poor pregnancy outcomes one of the things that when we spoke to Vanessa that she highlighted which I think was really pertinent is that there's been much made about this in the media in the research but actually what we're doing about addressing it earlier what are we doing about addressing it even before infertility even before we get to that point of a woman struggling to conceive what are we doing to start looking at it before it even becomes an issue and certainly Vanessa was also in that same light was talking about the difficulties the barriers due to religion community the leaders conversations that they're having and also accessing medical help. What could we do? We start doing earlier? So I very much agree with those thoughts. I mean, for us within the medical profession, sometimes we believe that creating a service means that everybody has equal access to that service without really deeply understanding both the visible and invisible barriers that may be in place. So for example, Having fertility clinics or infertility clinics located within hospitals, one may believe that that is all that is needed. But if a woman is unaware as to what infertility is in the first place, that she may need some help, yes, then she will not access that fertility clinic. So one of the things that I thought was very interesting from the HFEA report was that black women on average presented for fertility treatment one and a half years later than their um, white counterparts. And we know that age is a significant factor in successful outcomes. So what this really feeds into are a number of things. For some of these women, it may be lack of awareness that they have a problem. It may also be lack of awareness as to the options that are available to help them bridge this gap. Vanessa has mentioned maybe religious and cultural stigma around infertility. We know this in certain communities, both in black and Asian communities, but I mean, obviously I speak more for the black community, this issue or idea around super fecundity, super fertility. Um, And when we think about it in the media, when we talk about black women and fertility, it's normally around the problems that they have once they're pregnant. So the fact that they are four to five times more likely to die, or their babies are twice as likely to die. Or in fact, the recent Lancet series that said, show that black women were more likely to have recurrent miscarriage. But this is all looking at it from the platform of them having conceived in the first place. Until the HFEA report, there was very, very little discussion around infertility in black women. So there is a significant amount of poor awareness in that area. We need to stretch this out a little bit more when we talk about how do we increase awareness at a much earlier stage. And that's really around our gynecological well-being and our fertility well-being. So rather than looking at it from fertility disease, it's about our fertility well-being. How do we preserve our fertility? There are many gynecological issues that impact on fertility outcomes. And women, irrespective of their ethnicity, need to be aware of this so that when there are issues, 
they can seek the interventions early that can hopefully improve their outcomes. There are some biases in the medical setting around what may be the cause of infertility in certain women. So it is well documented that black women have a higher incidence of sexually transmitted infections, such as chlamydia and gonorrhea, which we know can cause tubal infertility. But I think sometimes that may delay the diagnosis of other causes of tubal infertility, such as the endometriosis in this group of women. We all know that women on the whole tend to have a delay of up to eight years for the diagnosis of endometriosis. And anecdotally, we think this may be longer for black women. If we have a delayed diagnosis of endometriosis, potentially causing tubal factors, the point at which the woman potentially gets treatment for endometriosis and then gets a referral into and, uh, fertility services will significantly impact on her health. Finally, one of the very sad things to read was the stark difference in ethnically matched sperm and egg donors. So for those who are seeking to conceive, who need an egg or sperm donor and wish for that to be ethnically matched, for black women and men, and indeed Asian women and men, that is significantly impacted by yeah. just um, the scarcity of eggs and sperm. I think where there are and there continues to be a taboo, a shyness, then those issues may persist. I think also when we see um, famous celebrities who have conceived, as, who announce that they are pregnant, no, in fact, when they announce that they've had a child, put it that way, but yet there isn't the openness. And to be honest, I mean, we all have our rights to and reveal what we want to reveal. Sometimes I re yeah. think that we reveal too much on public platforms. But the problem with lack of transparency is that people then sometimes erroneously have the belief of the ability to conceive at a much later age or the ability to conceive using their own eggs at a much later age, which may not necessarily be true for that individual. And I think it's quite hard for us who work in this space um, obviously, we field lots of discussions, um, particularly from people who are older or people who have um, very clear, defined and identified reasons for infertility, um, but wish to pursue one avenue that we know um, will not work for them. And also, we have to remind women that IVF treatment is not, um, is not successful 100% of the time. Um, many women don't understand that, and men, for example. So it's about, again, being open as to the success rates as they are, what influences those success rates, namely arriving at a much earlier age, for example, seeking help early rather than later. But what I think would be powerful is just really early education when we are young before infertility is even an issue. Yeah, absolutely. And just going back a little bit to kind of what you were referring to then about shame and infertility particularly in in women who um, are black or asian um and vanessa she said and this really resonated with me she said that black women are raised to be mothers and i thought yeah that makes an awful lot of sense given the community given this perceived fecundity as well in black women which but then it got me thinking and thought and i thought well 
I wonder how that differs to white women. Are we not all raised to become mothers? I mean, personally, I slightly always push against um, broad stroke descriptors and narratives, actually. I think it, it is always very, very different and very nuanced, even between different cultural groups with which anything that binds them is the colour of their skin. So, for example, there's something very different between maybe um, a Western-born, West African woman versus um, an East African-born woman who was born in East Africa or indeed um, somebody from the West Indies. I also personally would always push against um, social narratives, but, <laughs> but that's my own you know, personal stance. I think in society, there is still a rigidity of imagination around women and women's worth anyway, irrespective of our racial backgrounds. But we do know that in Western societies, there tends to be a little bit more freedom, in inverted commas, for women to choose whether they want to conceive or not. And that's got to do with just, you know, development and so on and so forth. So where people come from cultures where women do not necessarily have the so-called similar freedoms, of course, there is this greater intensity around and belief around the woman's worth is centered around her fecundity and, and you know, delivering a baby. And so those attitudes are changing. Saying that, as I said, I think even here in the UK in, in 2021, there is still a lot of um, unspoken views and narratives around women's worth. Essentially, the medical system has to change, has to be more culturally aware, has to be more culturally nuanced, but ultimately deliver the best care for the individual. But also women can be empowered by actually having a lot of this knowledge themselves and seeking the yeah. care early. You know, it's sort of two way. We have to be receptive to them coming early. and We have to encourage them to seek that help and we have to listen to their concerns. But I think it's important that we move the centre of knowledge away from healthcare professionals and hand some of that to women and, and young girls in particular mm -hmm. as well. Um, and that's very true when we're talking about fertility education. And it's not just women, by the way, it's also men. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, you know, we're always keen to highlight mm. the, uh, we've just in our previous episode had a, another big focus on men. And I know in the past we've talked about um, the uh, perceptions within black men about mm. their virility. And um, I will ask you to go and listen to that chat that we had mm. with Christine, because um, that, there was very interesting points there too. Christine, thank you so much. We've only just touched the surface on so much and it's always a real pleasure to talk to you because you're so insightful. Hopefully, the more we continue to use these different platforms um, to try and get that early education piece happening and, like you say, encourage more voices to share and to be brave so others can relate to them, that we will gradually take our fairy steps towards um, whatever our fairy tale ending is, Absolutely. be it you know motherhood in the traditional sense or not because we know as we talked about before that can look very different Absolutely. so thank you so much thank you do make sure you're listening all the way to the end because we'll give you all the info of our guests our last guest today is jazz rabadia so this part of the fertility podcast is proving slightly challenging and i'm delighted that uh, our guest that we're about to bring in is anything but welcome jazz rabadia to the final part of the fertility podcast and thank you for being patient as i have effed and blinded at my uh, podcasting software Are you okay <laughs> thank you for having me 
I didn't hear a single swear word, I promise. <laughs> liar, oh, liar. Goodness. Honestly, <laughs> Kate has just been holding the fort whilst I've been just, yeah, almost <laughs> headbanging head my computer. Right, Jazz, you and I have been part of a really great conversation in terms of the work Fairing have done, talking about awkward conversations around our fertility. We've spoken on stage at the Fertility Show before with Vanessa, who we've also spoken to on this podcast. And we really wanted to invite you back on the podcast in terms of what this episode is all about, about infertility having no colour and the issues that are still happening, still affecting um, different uh, people's experience of access to fertility treatment conversations within their community and I just wanted to I suppose because we haven't really had you on the podcast have you just explain a bit about your decision to share your your story as an Asian woman how it's been received in your community and what's kind of happened now you, you've you've kind of been in this community a couple of years you've shared the highs and lows of you know, having successful treatment of, of, of losing babies, of, of kind of having, you know, a, another child. And I just really wanted to have a, a chat really about whether you feel it's changed, the kind of conversations you've been having. Um, you can tell that I haven't got my notes open, which is why this is a really long <laughs> intro. Just in terms of your experience, just tell us a little bit about your decision to share it. Sure. Okay. Um, so I guess it all started on my first Mother's Day as a mother. So I know Mother's Day can be a particularly triggering day for most, uh, for some reason or the other. And I just, I was just reflecting on how just grateful I was to be able to celebrate Mother's Day as a mother and just the journey that I had been on and how lonely and isolating it felt even though most people would describe me as the kind of the most sociable, extrovert, bubbly person in the room. I felt everything but for the three years um, where I was trying to conceive unsuccessfully. And I just, at that moment, I thought, if I don't share my story, then who? If I am not feeling strong enough to have a voice, then what hope do perhaps some of the less extrovert people, less confident people have? And at that point, I just, I, I didn't even think about how many other people it might be affecting. Um, you know, the, the infertility community was very new to me. I just felt like I had to, I guess, save my heart from being so heavy. And throughout my trying to conceive journey, I was writing things down because that was my way of coping. That was my kind of my own therapy. Um, and I felt that on that Mother's Day, I felt that I was ready to share that with the world, not to, not really to help anybody else, just to help myself, just to feel as though, you know, all of this has not been done in vain, that if I can, if I can just change one person's attitude towards infertility, um, then perhaps, then perhaps this whole journey wouldn't have been in vain, essentially. To be honest, it wasn't even an easy decision, because I felt that whilst it was predominantly my story to share you know in the Asian community it's never your own story I'm part of a huge family and everything that I do I feel is a reflection on them you know be it my husband my mom even my mother-in-law when I thought about what could have been seen as airing my I'm not saying dirty laundry but you know talking about something very private and very intimate the first thing that crossed my mind is, is you know is my husband going to be okay with this 
what will my mother-in-law say? I kind of knew my mum would be fine with it. But, but you know, the fact that I had to think about all these things when it, ultimately all of this, all of what happened will happen to my, like, predominantly to me and my husband. These are all the kind of considerations that you have to make because, you know, I, I like to say that Asian people, we like to talk, just not about the things that matter. So in me sharing my fertility story, I didn't think people would think, oh my gosh, I suffered the same or, you know, um, so unfortunate she had to go through this alone. I thought that they'd be thinking, gosh, look at her looking for attention. Or no wonder she struggled. It's because she didn't do this, this and this. Or, you know, she focused on her career for far too long. She should have started earlier. Um, you know, it's because she she got married late. You know, if they lived with their in-laws, perhaps this wouldn't have happened. All of those judgments um, I was fearing. But, you know, I felt the fear and I did it anyway, just because I thought this is going to help me release some of the tension that I was feeling, but also help me by raising awareness of this so that perhaps somebody else that's going through this doesn't feel that they have to do it alone. Jess, can I just go back to what you just said then? It was really powerful that in the Asian community, it's never your own story. It's other people's. Tell me a bit more about that because why Why is that? Because that's the crux of it actually, isn't it? Yeah. That, that really is the crux it, of it. It doesn't even matter whether it's, you know, it doesn't matter if it's infertility, whatever it is, you bought a new house, you're seeing a new per- a new fella, you're having kids, you're not having kids, you're getting married, you're not getting, everything seems to be everybody else's business. And there's so much focus on reputation. Um, you know, I don't know if it's a, I mean, I'm a British born Indian. So you'd think that a lot of those kind of old school traditions would have passed a couple of generations by now, but no, it's still very apparent. You know, everything you do is, is to look good for yourself, for the family, for the wider community. And so it's pride, isn't it? A lot of pride. Yeah, and, and, you know, if you look at it in the other way, it's shame. Mm. It's the shame that what, you know, bad things bring upon you and the family. And it sounds like a very, harsh word to talk about infertility and shame but yeah shame that I wasn't able to bring to fruition the family that I once envisaged you know again Indian Indian communities and Indian families are built on big families the big fat Indian wedding you know that's big family big family events it's all driven around you know multiple generations living in one household I grew up with my dad, my grandparents, um, all in one household. You know, my brother had my nephew in the same household. There were four generations at one point living in one household. That is what my community centered around. So the inability to create one of your own feels like you're causing shame upon the family. And do you think that kind of emphasis on pride and shame and the story being not yours, but everybody else's. Do you think that's different to the black community or the white Caucasian community? I'd say there's probably a lot more similarities. When we're talking on stage with Vanessa, you know, uh, everything she said, I was like, yep, replace replace, um, your community with Indian and you have my story, essentially. And I think it's just, yeah, it's it's those kind of close-knit communities that are centred around family that I think this is particularly prominent in. I mean... 
some of the things that I've heard both of you talk about is really similar to my experience of being in a Jewish community. And I think when there is that openness of everybody's business, then that closeness happens of what's actually going on. And we've talked in this episode, especially with Christine, about this um, education piece. Vanessa touched on it as well, that awareness of fertility issues and the importance of reproductive health within the community and when there is so much emphasis on family building and the assumption that you're going to have a family did you have that awareness or was it in an unfortunate learning as you go and is that what you've heard from other people that you've now shared your story with it they, they just didn't realize they didn't know anything about it nobody ever talked to them about it in their community yeah for sure and I always say to people you know, I'm a very educated woman yeah I knew nothing about having how to make babies you know if anything we're taught from a very young age and again perhaps there is a cultural element to this is that this is how not to have babies. You know, don't don't you dare fall pregnant before you get married. Certainly now, perhaps it's the age that I am at. Uh, perhaps it's the fact that I am very vocal about my fertility um, experiences that I have so many people in my close-knit circle, both Asian and non-Asian, that are unfortunately finding out, like you said, finding out the hard way, finding out not too late, but I just feel like in your early 20s, mid-20s, Perhaps you're not in a position to start thinking about these things, but you know, I'm sure everybody in this community would say, if I if I knew then what I know now, I would do things so differently. And I think that that is that's our duty, right? As 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 kind of survivors of this, that's our duty to go and and prevent others from having to find out far too late because there are things that you can do. There are interventions, and even if you don't take action on those, just knowing. And making an informed and educated decision around it. And that's what I feel. I feel hard done by because I was like, how was I supposed to know? Who was there telling me that this could potentially be an issue? Um, that there are things that I could have done slightly differently. Perhaps I could have saved myself from this heartache. Um, that's what I want to champion for is, is yeah, education, awareness, and also just um, openness about the fact that, you know, when I did eventually share my stories, the amount of people that, that just responded to, Yes, I've been through the sim- a similar thing. Gosh, you've just told my story. You've given me a voice by you finding your own. Um, or simply, I had no idea that people go through this. Thanks for shining a light on it. You know, mm. it's, it's so, and I think the fact that it was, it wasn't just some random person that they're reading about in the press. You know, this was somebody that they knew, you know, a thousand people that go to my temple knew my story. Um, of all ages, of all, um, genders they were all kind of because they want to know there's there's a part of them that wants to know because it's it's great community gossip um (laughs) but there's many that this story just resonated with they're like ah you know you know and I put these little snippets in there to kind of slyly say look next time you hear or next time somebody's been married five years and they haven't had a baby stop making these Mm. nasty comments stop judging just let people be and be there to support them because you know for all the the annoying things about the community there's so there is so much good and if we could just tap into that good then that community could be uh, such a better support mechanism than than I felt that it was at the time that I was going through my infertility struggles and if someone in your community had said after a couple of years of you getting married jazz are you, is there any, are you struggling? Can I help you? If, if somebody in your community had offered that support, do you think 
knowing what you know now and knowing what you've just said about how the community can really be that place, because we're talking about access. Ultimately, we want to make it clear to where this support needs to to stem from. If it's not from medical professionals, it is within community for community leaders. Do you think you would have taken that advice from somebody in your community? Yeah, absolutely. There are so many people that I value and respect, right? I would go to them for work questions. I'd go to them for career advice. I'd go to them for, hey, I'm in a really sticky situation. You know, people who are who are learned, who are friends, who are family, of course, yeah, they are, they are my go-to people for everything but, right? Up until now, it would have been for everything but. Why am I comfortable um, talking to them about, you know, should I, what do you think about this new job opportunity, which is a big life decision for me, but not um, necessarily ready to have a conversation with them about trying to build a family. I, it's, yeah, I've, I mean, I found it very bizarre that I didn't feel I could go to the community that I am, that I've been brought up in and that I would go to for anything else. And yeah, everybody says it's a taboo subject and I say it still, but I don't get why. With kind of your voice and Vanessa's voice and Christine, there seems to be, and, and others, but there seems to be a bit of a shift. And we've, we've posed this question to both Christine and Vanessa. Within your community, are you seeing that women are talking more? My personal experience of this is certainly in the last three years since I've become more vocal is that people are coming to me. People I don't, people that live three or four roads away um, that happen to be Asian that I've never met before in my life contact me on Facebook going, hey, love what you're doing. Thank you for talking about this subject. Would love to meet you in the park for a walk. And, and I've done that. I've met people in parks for walks. I've um, some people aren't comfortable with that. And it's, you know, just talking on Instagram. It's sharing my blogs. It's talking about particular posts that they find um, helpful or triggering. It's really hard to relate when there isn't that representation. And as soon as you see someone that's kind of akin to, to you, you're like, this is it. This is my story, even though it's not. And I think the amount of comfort I underestimated how much comfort people have taken in, in me sharing my story. I never I never imagined that it could bring people um, people comfort at all. And, and that's such a huge win. But like I said, I did it for very selfish reasons. I did it to help me, not necessarily to help others. And the fact that it's helped others has made it pretty infectious. It makes me want to talk about it even more. Of, the, of that giving back as well element, isn't there? You, of giving back more support because you can and because you have that voice and you've got that ability then to help other women rather than just disappearing and getting on with pregnancy and new babies you're actually still in the space having that voice yeah because it doesn't just end there right it you know you don't have a baby and then everything's magically fixed and I think that that's also a really important um, topic to address Mm. is that it stays with you and there yeah like I said there'll be it's not certain just times in the year where it's triggering like like Mother's Day like Diwali or whatever it is actually it's always there it's just and when it surfaces, like I'm letting it surface as opposed to hiding away in a corner, you know, pretending that, well, I should, I should, I'm feeling guilty for, for feeling the way that I do because yes, I, I'm, I have two very beautiful children. Um, but that doesn't make the pain go away, the pain of the journey go away. And so I think, yeah, it's very important to, to continue to talk about it and to continue to address it and to, yeah, to continue to provide, I guess, hope. 
Oh, what a bumper filled episode we've had. And I just, I know it's a bit longer than normal, but I really wanted to have Vanessa, Christine and Jazz, even though there's all sorts that we've kind of unpacked there. The, the kind of overriding theme is how important it is to try and kind of penetrate this wall of silence exists. And I'm still flummoxed as to how we can really manage it. What do you, what do you think we are having success with in these conversations? Do you know, I think the mere success at the moment is that we're actually talking about it. And I think mm. that's as far as success goes right now. Because that's only been very recent and I think there's so much more work. And I think Christine said, didn't she, there's so much more work that needs to be done to actually make huge inroads. But the fact that we're talking, the fact that we're talking and that has highlighted organizations and research to start happening is great. And I think that that needs to be celebrated before we think about what, what are the next things. You're right. And like Jazz was saying, in terms of her community, the fact that there are more conversations within her community and you know Vanessa's got her platform Jazz is doing different kind of ongoing pieces and and conversations and we've mentioned some other bloggers and they'll all be in the show notes they're all people who are getting inspired every time someone reaches out saying that it's helped them and it's the same motivation for me with the podcast that every time someone says oh I found you you're like right onwards and I think you know just like Jazz saying, walking in the park with a stranger, you, you just you, you know that it's that ripple effect, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. And, and you're a stranger, but you're tied by the same situation, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. Mm. So we really hope this has been useful. We'd, be, we'd love, as always, your feedback. If you feel like leaving us a review, Apple Podcasts is the easiest place to do it. Again, there'll be a link in the show notes. You can also get in touch with us on our socials. I'm at Fertility Poddy. And I'm at Your Fertility Journey. Before we let you go, though, here is the latest question answered from our expert, Dr. James Nikopoulos. Ask the expert. 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 I had a miscarriage at the end of February and it took eight weeks for me to stop bleeding from it. I've had complications with the product conception being trapped in my cervix. I've had a very light three-day period two weeks after I stopped bleeding and then 20 days into my next cycle started to spot that's now been going on for eight days. It's not heavy. Question is, is this my period or something else? They're unsure about what's going on. The first period after a miscarriage, be it a natural miscarriage or a surgical one, can come a little bit later, a bit late. So sometimes it's three or four weeks, sometimes it can be up to six weeks. So it's not massively unusual to be slightly out of kilter. But it does sound like there was an issue at the start. It does sound the spotting's been persistent. So I do think it's worth getting a scan just to make sure there aren't any retained products there. Because if there are, then it's probably worth you know, investigating and possibly removing them because otherwise the cycle won't kick back in properly and the chances of you know, getting pregnant again quickly aren't going to be there. So I think at this point, it's, unless things settle quickly, it's worth getting a good quality scan just to make sure everything looks okay. There's a similar question that might um, we might tie in with this one. Somebody else has asked, can you start trying as soon as miscarriage bleed ends? In theory, um, physiologically, medically, yes. You know, most people emotionally want to give themselves a bit of a month off. But the drive to your ovary, the hormonal drive to your ovary will begin happening pretty much straight away. At some point, you'll ovulate. So can you get pregnant? Yes. There's no evidence there to suggest that the outcome is going to be any better or worse because most people don't get pregnant a month after but there's no absolute reason. Ask the expert. 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 
Right, that's it from us. You're good to go. Thank you as always for your support. And until the next time. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.